0: It's fine when everybody's really outraged that people can all self-motivate and get themselves out into the streets. But given that politics is, you know, a long marathon and not a short sprint, the outrage can't last forever. I mean, and granted, we've had a lot of outrage over the past three years, and I don't imagine that the outrage is, gonna, is going to stop anytime soon, at least. But at the same time, maintaining the kind of geographically diffuse pressure that's needed, to make real political change in America requires that there's more than just outrage fueling a resistance.
1: From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy on the campus of Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam.
2: I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. Joining us today, guys, we have Dana Fisher from the University of Maryland, uh, author of a new book called American Resistance, From the Women's March to the Blue Wave. So... As we record this, we are just coming off of the most recent Women's March, and Dana kind of frames this book as an ethnography of the people who have been out not only at the Women's March but also at the March for for Climate Justice, the March for Our Lives, and some of the the other large scale protest movements we've seen since
3: 2016. And so the reason we have these this. We're talking to Dana now, is because it falls nicely with our uh, recent conversation with Theda Scotchpole about the uh, Tea Party, right? So we're we're talking about two uh, protest movements, very strong, very powerful, both kind of outside the uh, the general political uh, realm
1: and um, completely
3: opposite in terms of their uh, political objectives.
1: Yeah, well, the the jury is out on the power of the resistance movement. Well, just in terms of
3: numbers, right? Yes,
1: certainly in terms of numbers. But I I say that because the Tea Party has fundamentally changed the Republican Party. The Republican Party is now the Tea Party. The, The Freedom Caucus that basically runs the Republican conference in the House is the Tea Party. I
3: think you could make a very similar argument about the Democratic Party. Really? In what yeah, case? Because I think in many ways the the policy discussions in the debates right now are more in tune with what the protesters are talking about oh, than think, they were in 2016. Yeah, but I think that's because of Bernie. Well, I think that's a that's a an empirical question. I, mean, I, and think I don't know how to say where one starts and what one ends, but well, but, that's
1: the point of the discussion. Though. Well, but and that's they, the <laughs> point. Of, that's the point
3: of uh, quantitative political science is to find these dependent variables and make them lay down and whimper. And I'm just saying it's all part of a of a conversation or, or a climate yeah. that's changing things.
1: So yeah, so I don't really agree with that. I think that yeah, I'm not
3: surprised. I think I, that,
1: but my point on this is, if you look at the signs.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: They were basically about Donald Trump. Yes. And I was thinking about this because of the uh, the uh, uproar, I think appropriate uproar, about the National Archives. Mm. Did you catch this story? Yes, yeah, yeah. But it's, go ahead and – Well, the National Archives just had in its welcome area a dramatic photo of the last Women's March. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had made the decision, which they now have apologized for and claim to have reversed – to blur out the parts of the signs that were anti-Trump. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, there was one sign that I found particularly interesting because the sign was God hates Trump. And the way that the National Archives had it was God hates. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the part, which is really a very different kind of <laughs> very different kind of meaning. And we could get into why it is that we're trying to protect the president's feelings in terms of but. That march, this march, the signs are all about Trump. What holds together the resistance is a visceral dislike and disapproval of Donald Trump. So
3: I I think that's right. I also don't think that is that distinctive in American politics. I think uh, people all often—
1: Civil uh, rights movement was about civil rights. The gun control movement is about guns. The, the gay rights movement was about gay rights. They weren't about a particular person you want to get out of office. Now, to get there, right. you had to win elected offices. Right. You had to remove opponents. But this movement, it seems to me, has no life after Donald Trump. In fact, you know, one reason that I think the protests have have sort of slowed down to the mm-hmm. extent that they were, I mean, on the one hand, it was kind of inevitable because how can people keep that up? Right. But on the other hand... If you look at these movements as largely about opposition to the Trump administration, the victories in 2018, which uh, Dana argues, I think, compellingly, uh, and Theda Paul makes this argument even more so in the, in the work that they, Theta Scotchpol in the book that, that we were talking about last week, that uh, these movements were very important to success mm-hmm. in 2018. But once they won that, once they got the House, once they had that check, on Donald Trump, I think a lot of the energy has come out of this. Now that doesn't mean the energy won't be back for the election in November. Mm-hmm. I believe it will, mm-hmm. but around the particular issues, because I don't think it was about the issues. Well, there is this kind of
3: visceral denial of the claims of the progressive the progressive left, and that, and beca- and so, and it's because of its rhetorical dismissiveness that is going to necessarily create a, a counter reaction and an emotional counter reaction.
2: So the other thing that that I think is interesting, I think you're kind of speaking to this a little bit, and and uh, Dana's work certainly brings it up too, is that the the resistance has a much harder time getting getting everyone under the big tent, so to speak, than Democrats the always tea have a problem dent. getting
1: everybody under. I mean, this is a fundamental difference between the Democrats and the Republicans. The Democrats are much more of a diverse collection of mm-hmm. interests and the Republican party are much more coherent ideologically. Yeah, I think that is a perennial problem within,
3: you know, for, for Democrats and that their, their weakness, political weakness um, is that be, by trying to keep this coalition together, they uh, diminish the power of their argument because there's so much to it. I just think that kind of happens with Democrats. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you know, the old line from uh, Rahm Emanuel that, you know, Democrats fall in love, Republicans fall in line. I just think that's right, you yep. know. And so I don't think there's much you can do about it. But I do think it's interesting that for uh, Dana Fisher, her one big takeaway is that in this case, all these people who are approaching protest and who are outraged about their own specific issue, gun rights, women's rights, um, climate, whatever you, whatever you want, are all consider themselves to be at minimum fellow travelers on all these other issues. The progressive movement is much stronger mm-hmm. with Trump than it would have been without him. I, I think that's absolutely true. And there's and the thing that's true about both of them And they, they would have lost the house without him too. Uh, and the thing that's true about both the Tea Party and the the resistance is that they brought people in to protest who had not been there before. Well,
1: that's an important. And important that is point. an
3: interesting thing that's ca- characteristic of our, part of our politics right now. Yeah. So why don't we bring in uh, Dana and uh, hear the interview, and then we'll be back. Here
2: is my interview with Dana Fisher. This is Jenna Spinelli here today with Dana Fisher. Dana, thank you for joining us on Democracy Works. Thanks so, so much for having me, Jenna. So uh your book is called American Resistance and looks at the resistance movements that or or movements maybe plural that have uh crept up uh since Donald Trump's election in in the US. But you know, like a lot of things in our media, our culture today, I think the, the term resistance it's kind of a catch-all, gets thrown around a lot. Um so to to start off, can you um tell us how you define resistance in the, the context of your work?
0: Sure. The the resistance, I think that's a very good place to start. And I actually, in the book, I start by talking about what the resistance is and what I mean by it right in the beginning of the book, because it has become such, such an overused term. The way that I talk about the resistance is I think of the resistance as a counter movement to the Trump regime. So it involves people working individually and through organizations to challenge the Trump administration and its policies. And because it's specifically about targeting the Trump administration and its policies, people in the administration who are writing anonymously in the New York Times or publishing books anonymously, calling themselves the resistance, don't fit into my definition of resistance. It's also worth noting that in my definition of resistance, the Antifa, which has emerged in a number of different occasions since uh, the inauguration of Donald Trump, specifically in response to white supremacy, uh, to be violent in response to white supremacy and white supremacists marching, et cetera. Uh, They don't count if they're not targeting the Trump administration and its policies. And because I define this as a counter movement, it means that like the Tea Party was a counter movement to the Obama administration, it merges together a bunch of different strains of activism or resistance, however you want to define it. To work together, so in a lot of ways, it's this merging of the progressive movement into one, you know, river of resistance that specifically has the common enemy of the Trump administration and its policies.
2: Sure. And beyond that, that opposition to the Trump administration and its policies, is there anything that unites these these different strains or or different groups that make up the the larger resistance movement?
0: Well, I think that we could say that the this movement is unified also in its progressive ideals. So within the project, I surveyed at all of the large scale marches that happened in Washington, D.C., starting with the Women's March in 2017, all the way through. I mean, I've continued collecting data, but the book ends with the final chapter being uh, based on the data that I collect at the Women's March 2019 last January. And one of the things that unifies all the people who participated is their concern about a number of different progressive issues. And depending on the event where I'm collecting data, different issues take precedence. So obviously, women's rights, reproductive rights are very prominent in the women's marches. But at the People's Climate March, climate change is obviously a prominent feature. At the March for Racial Justice, racial justice and Black Lives Matter tends to be a prominent issue. But one of the things that I've done in the project is I've collected data on people participating in the resistance in the streets by asking them what's motivating them to be out there. And I think another prominent component here is that we see multiple motivations that span the progressive spectrum. And it means that people who come out, for example, to participate in the People's Climate March, which took place in April 2017, actually also had high concern for issues related to equality, issues, you know, and other issues that span the progressive agenda. And we see that at every one of these events. And it means that the movement tends to be focusing on a lot of ways on whatever the issue is, that is the focus of attention at the moment, as well as what has raised the most outrage recently. So for example, at the more recent women's marches, the last two women's marches that have taken place in 2018 and 2019, both took place during shutdowns in the U.S. The first one was just a two-day shutdown in 2018. 2019 was the longest shutdown in U.S. history. And as a result, at both of them, one of the motivations that brought people out was Donald Trump himself. And maybe people, when they were filling out the survey, would say to me, you know, mentioned the shutdown and how frustrated they were with the Trump administration and its policies and so you you can see these patterns i've worked with uh, some colleagues on a number of papers around these overlapping motivations
2: is that sense of of anger or or outrage enough to you know get people involved on a on a more consistent basis as opposed to just a one-time engagement at a march
0: well, my, my observations or my research has shown that outrage tends to be one of the initial kind of sparks that gets people out in the street. And at these the early marches, like the Women's March 2017, a third of the crowd reported never having participated in a protest before. And in fact, I got lots of people telling me, you know, I've never done this before, but I had to come out after this election. And what we saw in the crowd was very much this sense of kind of group therapy taking place at these events. But then I think that the outrage, it didn't pass necessarily, but it basically was met with these opportunities for further engagement. As I talk about a lot in the book, you know, organizations, be they, you know, civil society organizations, social movement organizations, whatever you want to call them, these groups are, you know, the connective tissue of democracy in a lot of ways in America, because they do a lot of the work of coordinating among individuals. And so in a lot of cases, the people who at first just felt like they had to get out in the streets and in many cases they weren't particularly connected to organizations then channeled their outrage into real activism through organizations and in many cases targeting the election, particularly the midterm election in 2018.
2: Right. Yeah, and on that point about organizations, you you do list several of them in the book. Move on, Indivisible, Swing Left, March on. Um, for people that that might not be as familiar with with those groups, maybe only only heard them in passing, or you know things like that. Can you just give us a quick overview of of what each of these groups does and how they relate to each other?
0: So, Women's March originally started just as a march, but became its own organization. Indivisible was founded. Then we also have Swing Left, which was coordinating specifically around swing swing districts. We had Flippable, which now has merged with Swing Left more recently, and they were specifically working on down ticket, as in state level campaigns. And then we also have March On, which actually spun off from the Women's March about a year after uh, the first Women's March. But then there are also these organizations that I talk about in the book, which were already existing, so they had existed prior to the women's march but then they redirected their efforts so the ACLU particularly started their people's project which was focused sorry people's power which was specifically focusing on trying to take advantage of this energy and enthusiasm and do work uh, that's more political around the resistance and you know a lot of the momentum for that came from the response to the travel ban that happened right after the women's march right after the inauguration Move on, which has been active since the impeachment of Bill Clinton, uh, started focusing more on kind of electoral campaigns and these these areas. So we see a lot of that I mean, and the Democratic Party is there, although it's not as active as one might expect, but it certainly is playing, you know, kind of a backup role when we start looking at the ways that different people were working. After marching in the streets within their, you know, congressional districts.
2: Yeah, and and why is the, the the Democratic Party not as active as as you might expect it to be with some of these organizations?
0: Well, I mean, as I I actually talk a lot about uh, the challenges that the Democratic Party faced back in my 2006 book Activism Inc., where I talk about the lack of investment by the Democratic Party in local communities and in real political infrastructure, as defined as, you know, kind of grassroots efforts to connect individuals who are more left leaning. And many of people have talked about this challenge that the Democratic Party uses, you know, astroturf versus, you know, laying real, real grassroots, uh, which I talk at length about in in my second book. Um, And so when we move forward to 2016, the the problems that I chronicled in 2006 had continued. I mean, in a lot of ways, the Obama administration, the Obama campaign in 2008, masked over a lot of the, the problems that we saw with regard to real grassroots infrastructure being built at the local level among the Democratic Party or Democratic Party operatives. And so when we get to 2016, resistance groups in a lot of ways Form to fill the void because there isn't a lot of opportunity for local people to get involved in progressive left-leaning activities in their communities. The other thing that's very interesting is that a lot of people whom I survey talk to talk to me about how they, um, they got involved in local Democratic campaigns. So those who worked with who reported working with the Democratic Party, 52% of them reported that the way that they actually worked with the Democratic Party was by volunteering with a party run campaign. So basically somebody who is running on a Democratic ticket locally.
2: Oh, that's that's interesting. So so there there are some some connections to, to be made then between this kind of issue based organizing around climate or or reproductive rights, things like that, and you know, translating that into specific candidates in in people's districts that are that are running.
0: Absolutely. I mean, and and we absolutely see that. And I think that um, in a lot of ways, the book chronicles the ways that people who come out originally around a specific issue. First, we see that they're motivated by not just one issue. They're motivated by a whole combination of issues that motivate them to take to the streets. But then when we see them channeling their work into local electoral politics, it's not around an issue or a candidate because of an issue, but rather they identify candidates to work with who care about their issues. But it's part of this kind of uh, suite of progressive political engagement.
2: Right. Um, you, you might have, have touched on on some of this already, but the, the resistance uh, also uses a model called distributed organizing. Can you explain what that is?
0: Yeah. So distributed organizing is a new way of organizing at the local level. And basically, it's coordinated digitally. And it means that it's something new that has only come up as people have become much more connected through all these different technologies that are now available. And distributed organizing means that no longer do people attend meetings and sign up and pay dues to organizations. But instead, They sign up to participate in a specific action, in many cases a protest, uh, through a website, and all of a sudden they're on a list and they're considered a member of an organization that was sponsoring this event. So distributed organizing has really changed this practice of membership. So membership doesn't mean you give money. It means that a group has your email address. And it, in a lot of ways, facilitated a, a move away from the federated structure of civic America that many people talked about. Uh, which basically showed that civic groups used to be f- modeled to be you know, following the same structure that our government did. So you had local groups that connected to state-level groups that connected to the national. And we saw organizations trying to target at these different scales of governance. We don't see that so much anymore. Instead, we have these nodes on a network that is much more structured based on social media connections and interests,
2: yeah, is is that a good thing? Do you think this this kind of shift in in the way people are are organizing? I know there's there's kind of this like organizing alone argument that's that's out there where even though you know people are doing all these things together, they're still very much on their own or or, or acting as individuals without that kind of larger structure you were just describing.
0: Well, I think there there are two sides to to distributed organizing. On the one hand, it basically uh, enables geographically diffuse organizing and activism. That means that somebody who is based in a very blue area can help on a campaign that's either issue-based or a political campaign, electoral campaign in a purple area or even a red area. At the same time, you, you you said it very, very well. I mean, and, and Mika Sifri just wrote a review of the book, which is actually called Resisting Alone, which is all about the potential challenges of distributed organizing, because it does mean that there's much less face to face interaction. And uh, and I also talk in the book about how you get a lot less brand loyalty for these organizations, which, as I said before. Uh, research says, and I, I agree with this idea that organizations very much are the connective tissue of democracy. Because it's fine when everybody's really outraged that people can all self-motivate and get themselves out into the streets. But given that politics is, you know, a long marathon and not a short sprint, the outrage can't last forever. I mean, and granted, we've had a lot of outrage over the past three years, and I don't imagine that the outrage is going to stop anytime soon, at least. But at the same time maintaining the kind of geographically diffuse pressure that's needed to make real political change in America requires that there's more than just outrage fueling a resistance.
2: Were there there other changes that you observed about this cohort over the the two or or so years that that you were out there doing surveys in the streets?
0: I mean, the the biggest change I see is that there was really a redirection of attention. And I, I I am certain that that redirection was very much corralled by these organizations that are very focused on electoral politics. In fact, a lot of issue-based groups that have historically been much more focused on uh, legislative initiatives have basically come out publicly and said, you know, if we really want reproductive rights or if we really want gun reform or if we really want any type of climate change policy – to happen in this country, we need to change who's in power. Therefore, we're going to put everything into the election. So I think that, um, so it makes a lot of sense that we would see all of the activists who originally got involved in marching, seeing that they need to get involved in the election. Uh, so there was very much an effort there. So that, I think that's one of the big differences. And at the same time, we're living through this amazingly heightened period of of civic engagement, certainly this is a cycle of contention that's only kind of paralleled by maybe the periods of the civil rights movement, anti-war movements that have existed in the past. So at the same time that I was collecting my data, people were not just getting involved, but they were staying involved, which is, you know, new. And, and there have been some surveys that have come out. And I think Pew has done some research around this, specifically documenting how much more engaged people are so that, you know, I have been documenting how people who have been marching in the streets are more involved. Then, you know, politically, then, you know, data show they were in the most recent G.S., for example, the General Social Survey, for example. But what's really interesting here is that at the same time, there are surveys that have come out that report that one in five Americans now are reporting that they participated in a protest, which is extremely high. And the big question that's on everybody's mind is, can this fragile coalition hold through 2020, right?
2: Right. And so on that point, looking ahead to what's to come throughout the rest of this year, we, we have the, the Women's March coming up again here just, just a couple of weeks from now as we record in, in early January. Um, what do you what do you expect in, in terms of, of interest and, and turnouts and are the, the groups that we've been talking about, you know, what are they doing to help keep that that energy up heading into not just the Women's March, but everything else that's that's to come in 2020?
0: So I think that the, the, I mean, the question about the Women's March 2020 is a really interesting one. So it'll be the fourth Women's March, but also the Women's March, the organization went through a huge restructuring not too long ago and has really kind of stepped back in terms of its prominence. And it's unclear the degree to which the shift will have an effect on, on turnout at these different marches. I know that there's been a big push to organize and bring people to D.C., and their website, as of yesterday when I checked, had hundreds of buses scheduled to be coming from all over the, you know, the eastern side of the United States. But I'm not sure that I even know a lot of people who live in my neighborhood, which is about 300 feet from the District of Columbia, who are planning to go to the Women's March. So I am not, at this point, expecting there to be a huge turnout.
2: And and what do you you attribute that to? Is it just kind of like the the more it's gone on, people are just kind of like been there, done that? Or is there like a sense of of fatigue that's setting in? Or are people focused on other activities with the, the primary set to start here pretty soon? I think that it's
0: completely about a redirection towards the electoral politics, electoral campaigns right now. Most of the resistance groups are not focusing on what I call resisting in the streets. They're not focused on protesting or marching. There have been these, these occurrences of events, like for example, right now, Swarm the Senate is taking place in DC, which is, you know, a you know, an effort to have people go into Senate buildings and occupy those buildings to try to pressure the Senate to move on impeachment. There was nobody's above the law, which took place last month trying to um show support for impeachment in the House of Representatives, but none of these first of all, have had huge turnouts like we've seen back in even 2018. More importantly, I think that a lot of the groups that are coordinating these events are doing so in a very careful and choreographed manner so that people don't lose their focus on the election and the focus on the primaries. And I think most of the groups, that is their sole focus right now.
2: right. Uh, and then finally, uh, Dana, what does the resistance look like after the election in November?
1: hmm.
0: It's a very good question. So the resistance after November could take a number of different forms, and it will really be completely contingent on the outcome of the 2020 elections. So an optimistic outcome where the resistance succeeds and there is a Democrat taking office in the White House and continues to be a Democratic majority in the House of Representatives and even the long shot Democratic majority in the Senate. Let's say that's possible. So, you know, in some ways, the resistance dream outcome. In that case, I think that it will be a real question about what happens to the resistance. This fragile coalition of organizations that have bonded together and mobilized, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people across the country to work together across a, a range of progressive issues will have a very hard time once they're working within an issue-based, specific political realm. Because all of a sudden, they're going to have to compete for attention and resources in ways that they don't right now because everybody's just working with, working on defense. Um, right. So that's, you know, that's their, their you know, the best case scenario for the resistance. You know, The worst case scenario is we end up with Donald Trump succeeding in his re-election bid, and we end up continuing to have a Republican majority in the Senate. It's in some ways, status quo. We get the exact same thing we have right now. I think that we're going to see a resistance, a coalition of groups and individuals who are extremely frustrated with the idea of what will come for the next four years, another four years of retrenchment and dismantling of the social net uh, welfare system, as well as all these other policies that were designed to support Americans and make sure that our environment is clean, etc., I think as a result of that, we're going to see a resistance that's becoming increasingly confrontational and, and reactionary. And, you know, I think a lot of the people who are willing to go out into the streets are going to be more interested in something less peaceful and more about, you know, pushing confrontation.
2: Well, we look forward to hearing more uh, on that project as it as it develops. But thank you for your book. It is it is an interesting glimpse into this this group of people and and, and how they came together. And it adds a a human element to to a lot of the kind of data and and statistics that we we typically see. So, um, Dana Fisher, thank you for joining us on Democracy Works. Thank you so much, Jenna.
3: interesting to me that, that you do see these parallels in the two descriptions of these two absolutely antithetical movements. And I think it was Theta, but I think uh, Dana talks about it as well, this idea that there is there's a s- distinct possibility that what we're seeing is kind of the new normal in
1: terms of politics. Well, you know, not just here around the world, right? There have been some massive protests massive going protests. on in different countries.
3: It is really, it really is astonishing. Yeah. how much? Um, I, mean, I I've
1: never seen anything like the photos out of Iran, right? And and the women's
3: march was, if I'm not mistaken, the biggest march in American history. American political history. Right? Yes. It not was. just in terms of raw numbers, but in terms of percentage of people in the in the country who were
1: involved. I think there are a couple of factors that push us towards moving into an environment where we're gonna see this more. I mean one obviously is social media. Mm-hmm. Uh, which makes it really very easy, or at least easier, to to act collectively. Dana Fish talks about that, Yeah, right? that so it's I think just, that's very important. Easier. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think we first became aware of that with MoveOn in the U.S. and with the Arab Spring mm-hmm. uh, in, in many Arab countries. But, uh, you know, it's, it's true around the world that social – that's why the Chinese, among other totalitarian regimes, focus so much on social media, their concerns about its – tool, about it as a tool for collective action. The the
3: other thing I think that is uh, reflective in both of them is this sense of outrage. Yeah, and I think that's really
1: important. Uh, And I mean, the outrage, sure, the outrage is in part Donald Trump and that has people, but it's more than that. I think it has to do much more with where we are in American politics right now, where identities and party identification, so social identities and party identification are so closely aligned. I agree. So that conflicts across parties politically become conflicts about about one's identity or about your in-group and the out-group that you are uncomfortable with. And
3: here's what I wanna ask you, because it does seem to me that both the Tea Party and the resistance um, were driven to protest because they uh, were shut out from federal politics. In, it, both in 2016 and 2008, you had one party in control of all three branches so of government. So it makes
1: an obvious and easy target. And,
3: and there was nowhere else to go. Yeah. And I wonder if, say, you know, 2020, you end up with divided government again. I wonder if that would make it less likely. To have these kind of protest movements, I don't know. Yeah, I don't but know. I think Leader, it's a fair question.
1: It's hard for me to imagine how peaceful protest is ever bad for a democracy. Am I missing something? The only thing I um, – Except when it means that there's no avenue within right. government that's for people's – That's what I I think I, that's I, the I, point.
3: I, if you – if protest is driven by this sense of that this is the only lead, outlet yeah. I have, then that's not good.
1: Yeah. I um, mean this was really true of the civil rights movement. I mm-hmm. mean the, the early civil rights movement focused on the courts mm-hmm. and it focused on the streets because it had – really no avenue right. within elected institutions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there was just extraordinary
3: discipline yeah. on the part of the civil rights movement So I guess to let me, keep it unvi- nonviolent.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I think to qualify my answer a little bit is to say that, you know, that sort of activism, that sort of energy, that sort of involvement is always good for a democracy. If what the protests are indicating to us is that, you know, large chunks of the population feel excluded from governing bodies, and that's problematic. right?
3: And if those protests, you know, this, this passion, this outrage, these numbers, if it ever appears to them that those actions are irrelevant to the political process, if, if it doesn't seem to make a difference, uh, then I think you'd see a different kind of protest, and it would not be good for democracy. But I agree. I mean, an active citizen is better for democracy than one who is indifferent regardless of where they come down. And so, yeah, I mean, you could, you could claim that there are some concerning dimensions to Tea Party and the resistance movement, both of which I think are probably fair. But in general, I think um, we have come upon this moment in American history where people don't take uh, politics for granted don't take democracy for granted and are willing to invest themselves in the outcome they want to see and that is almost universally a good thing that's how democracy works right mm-hmm. so um there we go uh you got up politics that. yeah politics 101 <laughs> yeah. all right so um so thanks to uh Dana and thanks again to uh, theta for really interesting bookends on this, you know, pretty dynamic moment in American history. And uh, thanks to all you for listening. I'm Chris Beam. I'm Michael
1: Berkman.
2: Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Penn State, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Andy Grant is our engineer, and our editors are Mark Stitzer and Chris Kugler. Additional support comes from Ann Danahay, Emily Reddy, Shireen Stanford, Craig Johnson, and the rest of the team at WPSU. For more information on this episode and detailed show notes, visit our website at democracyworkspodcast.com. And if you like what you heard today, please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.